Tonight, we are going to speak on self in the last days. And I just don't think we're ever going to recover from Sunday school, where they drew that great big fat leg up on the whiteboard, and we talked about the self leg. And we talked about some people just stay there forever. So anyway, this is a continuation of what self looks like. But you're going to appreciate this tonight because I'm not going to just make this instructional and just tell you I'm going to beat the pulpit and tell you all the bad traits about self and all that because you'll just go, ding, turn it off. (laughs) What I want to do is really speak to the generation because the generation doesn't understand self. And I thought if we could get an understanding tonight... That would be my goal, so I hope that's what comes across, is understanding what part self plays, where it plays, even some of the dangers that can happen, and what to do with yourself. I mean, it's not like I want you to go shoot yourself. I mean, I want you to live a good, wholesome, beautiful life with the Lord. That's what He's intended for us to do, to be blessed. But self can get in the way of you being blessed. So let's see if you think like your generation, or if you think like the Bible. Let's see if we can look at what self should look like during very difficult days on this earth. So we'll get into it. I'm going to ask you just right off from the beginning. Are you one of these people or someone who has a real high self-awareness? Self, you know, if you think about yourself, you're just consumed with self or focused with self. Or it's high on what self wants. In other words, do you have a lot of self in you? You know, we didn't throw that out because part of that's just age development. I mean, if you study human development, I mean, a little kid is just full of self. And then you grow out of it. And God kind of tricks us by falling in love and it helps us be less selfish. And it's funny how God does it, of growing us up. The self goal or how you deal with self has a lot to do with maturity. And about the time you get out of high school, you start realizing about yourself of, wow, I'm a pretty selfish person. I mean, that's just something that you start seeing about yourself. I know when I came to Christ, I was so young, but I had an awareness. I'm a little hard-hearted, selfish creature. And that was the freedom I got from Christ was the fact that, thank goodness, I didn't stay that way. I didn't stay trapped in myself. And that's the beauty of the Lord. And so sometimes I think people think this message is a bad one, but it actually is the best thing that can happen to you. I'm not going to make you write it down, hand it in to me, and give you an evaluation. This is for you. So you can write down, am I self-focused? Am I others-focused? Am I God-focused? Like, where is the bulk of my time spent? You know, there's blends, and what does the Bible say? I'm not telling you what it's supposed to be at this moment. I'm just asking you to look and see if everything is self, or it can be an interesting dilemma, too, if everything's others and not self. And then it's a problem if we're into self and others, but not God, which gives us a Bible study on people pleasing. And so we've got to take care of this self character tonight. And so we're going to start with something that I'm going to call the eye disease. Now, do you know what the eye disease is? The big eye, (laughs) the capital I. And I'm going to give you a few examples of it very quickly. But if you hear a whole lot of eyes, I, 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 you can be aware of something. You know, my dad thought it was indicative of this generation that we always said, me and you that our grammar was always us first. And he was like, I can't believe that everything is me, 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 me. And so this is what this is talking about is a lot of things that we do in life is I-centered. And so the Bible characters weren't exempt from this. You look at Hezekiah and in Isaiah 39, 7 through 8, he does a real boo-boo. He shows off the national treasury 
to the enemies. He shows off all the good stuff. He shows them the temple. He's just real proud to give them a tour because they gave him a gift. And he just didn't have any common sense as a leader. You don't realize as leadership, you've got to protect what belongs under your stewardship. But Hezekiah didn't look at it that way. So he showed it off. And the prophet came to him and it was real interesting. It was almost like a deal was made with Hezekiah. It said, because you've done this, he said, it's not going to come in your generation, but it's going to come on your children. Hezekiah says, oh, thank the Lord. Just thank the Lord. (laughs) You know, pity be your children. You know, if you're not thinking legacy, if you're not thinking those that secede you. So that's where it started with Hezekiah. In Christianity, a lot of times we just have the same kind of thing is it's all about what God can do for me. And if God should ever tell me a no, oops, I'm out of there. Like, that's it. I'm not going to take a no. Or if God asked me to do something. We got to realize that he tells us the promises in the Bible, but it's more than just promises. It's a lifestyle with the Lord. You know, a lot of times we use bait trying to get people in based on the promises. And Jesus did do that. He told the lady, look, I would like a drink of water. But five minutes later, he's saying, but I have living water. I mean, he's baiting that immoral lady. I have something you need. And so you see this, that there are promises, but at other times you see Jesus and he didn't use bait. I always say he fished with an unbaited hook sometimes and he made it really tough on people. So it's unusual to look at it as I'm only going to take promises from God. I'm never going to listen to anything else he says. It's going to make you one of those lopsided Christians. You're going to have one big fat leg. And your other leg is going to be totally useless to you. So I want you to think for a minute, who is the most self-centered person you know? Let's just say the second most self-centered person you know. Because <laughs> we all know we're the most self-centered because we think about ourselves all the time. Somebody's got to think about us. That's how we look at it. Anyway, think who you know that you just think, my goodness, that's a self-centered person. I don't know how to help them. They're just so focused on themselves. That's what this is about, the great eye. So you see it in Hezekiah. Then you see it in Ecclesiastes with Solomon. Did you know when you look, especially in chapters 1 and 2, you hear him say a lot of eyes, I, 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 I. And did you know even when we start slipping into depression, like Solomon, there's a lot of eyes to it. And I have to realize that a lot of it is I've got to get out of my self-focus. When I'm hit with fear, I've got to realize it's I. I think I'm going to get scalped. I think my head's going to come off. You feel that fear happening to you. It's I. And so Ecclesiastes, Solomon was making that point that everything's meaningless. It's vanity. You know, it makes no sense. And he looked through it through a self-lens. And you see a lot of eyes in it. Part of your jobs in parenting is to help work your kid out of all the eyes. It's helping where they realize there's someone else in the world. <laughs> there's a lot to raise a kid these days, and one of them is working with them so that they don't get to the end of their life and they get disillusioned. And the I path, the self path, will lead people to disillusionment. You know, Daniel 3, you think of Nebuchadnezzar, and he did his famous I did this, I did this, I did this by my hand, I did this. And what happened? The man became a beast. (laughs) And for seven years, he just roamed around. And I would say that's pretty true. When we get real eye-focused or real self-focused, we become like a little beast. Like everybody's like, oh my gosh, look at that little monster. And that's really what takes place. And then when he lifted his eyes to the Lord, that his mind came back to him. 
when we turn our hearts to the Lord, you know, that's the same as the next person, the prodigal son. I, I, I. The eyes are where the trouble began. The I, I, I of the prodigal. I deserve this. Every sinful behavior stems from selfishness. Fear is a manifestation of self. Depression is a manifestation of self. Controlling, manipulation, all manifestations of self. You can't name a sin that doesn't have the root of selfishness. And the middle letter in sin is I. And so you can see when you get really carried away with I that it gets us in a lot of trouble. And so like when I'm in fear, what do I do? I run straight to those promises of God. And I start putting promises to work in my life. When I feel depression, I sit there and say, tears may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, you have these different verses that God gives you that he heals the brokenhearted. But if you stay locked in something, you're in a trap. And so just like Nebuchadnezzar became a little beast, so did the prodigal become a little beast. I mean, he just took out and he ended up eating with the pigs. He was with the bacon. He was in the back. And that was who he was until he thought of something and he realized dad's employees have better food than what I get. And so with the young men, we talk about it. It was his stomach. It started driving him back home. He was going to be an employee. And then suddenly he lifted up his eyes. Y'all, it's the lifting up the eyes that will change everything. And does this generation need it? Yeah, we've got to lift up our eyes. That is your message to people around you. Because if you're determined to manipulate, if you're determined to control, to get the love that all need, that we all cherish, you will get what only your hands can give you. You have to lift up your eyes. You know, I was sitting in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in a living room. And I was with some Amish people, and they had a plaque up on the wall. And the Amish saying that they taught me was, he's just full of himself. And I thought about it. Well, let's do something. Let's take your cap off. Let's shave the top of your head off, and let's look. Are you full of yourself? Yes. Self is down inside of self. How can it not be? You are full of yourself. And I found out that's more true than we think. That somebody can be really full of themselves. So that's what you're looking at. You're doing an introspection on yourself to see if you are someone that is just full of yourself. And you say, how can I not be? I'm self. Of course I'm full of myself. And you know what? That's true. Unless Jesus gets a hold of you. Unless the Lord gets a hold of you. I don't see how people apart from Christ could do much of this. I don't see how you can do it apart from the Lord. So you look inside of yourself and you see what's in there. You have Luke 10, 40, and it's the I, I, I of Martha. And she gets Jesus and she says, look, she's leaving me with all the dishes. This has been something she's done all of our growing up years. I can't believe it. Make her come help me. And so you see Martha, you see it in the guy who goes into a place and he gets the best seat or the man whose brother stole the inheritance or the bigger born man. In these biblical stories, it's telling us times of people that had the eye disease. Now, Jesus doesn't just heal blindness, but he touches this in our life. So our high self, our highest priority, what does self want? Now, it is good to know what you want because what you want will be attracted to you. And so there's nothing wrong with determining what do I want. I'm going to show you where this goes. And I actually learned about this in Israel, and it was from commanders. And hopefully the older people among us 
will have the most wisdom on this. Hopefully that with age comes understanding and wisdom. Because this is how they were looking at it in the military. Like the band around your nose. Like they said that when guys join the military, they have a band around their head. And it goes just to their nose. And these are the young soldiers. It wraps around their head and it just makes a complete circle around. Just as far out as their nose. These are the ones that first are recruited. And they said in battle, you can know that they're going to only act and react based on what's important to them in that circle. And they said they won't think past their nose. I got tickled at that to think that most soldiers only care about themselves. But as they get in there and get with other soldiers, they start caring about someone else. Then their buddy means something to them. They start being able to lead other men. But in the beginning, the private is a private. He only thinks about privately himself. But guess what? Israel thinks they can train you out of it, where you can care more than about you. Well, if Israel can do that, because I'm asking the question, can you do this apart from God? And who would want to do it apart from God? But it's the same way to understand that when I'm first looking at you and when you're very young, that's where it's going to be. I'm going to look at you and say, she has a very small circle. She cares about others out to her nose. But as you grow, you start caring about more than yourself. It grows. You're caring. It develops. That's what's called maturity. And I thought that was such a unique thing to see it in the military, that they have to really watch against it because he will only react to protect himself. But maturity will cause him to be trained to care about more. So you're getting into this place to see if you can understand something through someone else's shoes. And even more than that, can you get God's perspective on it? Is that possible? Like that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways higher than our ways. Could we even possibly begin to understand what would Jesus want us to do? What is his heart on this matter? Well, in this thing of looking at myself and having a high self-priority in life, you know, the question that you're asking, if you hear yourself asking this, anytime you're made an offer, anytime you have to make a decision, you're saying to yourself, what's in it for me? Then you know that you're thinking about self. You haven't trained yourself to look up. So I'm going to give you two scriptures that you can use. And this was my beginning years of training myself out of this, especially when someone put pistachio nuts in a bowl on the table. I mean, they're worse than Doritos. I mean, they're addictive. (laughs) You don't steal in life. You wouldn't ever steal, but when they left the room, you wanted more and more. And then you're trying to get rid of the shells. I had never met pistachio nuts. These are your verses. Psalm 32, 9. It tells you that the bit and the bridle are meant for a horse and a mule. But you're supposed to be where God does not have to use a bit in your mouth that he doesn't have to use a bridle on you to get you to do what he wants you to do. Like it's that beautiful thing of all you horse people in here, that you can train a horse where you can ride it without the bit or the bridle. Did you know that's what your training is? Is that God wants you to the point that he doesn't have to put a bit in your mouth and say, turn you, tear your lip. It hurts because he's trying to protect you. He's like, don't go over that cliff, a bit and a bridle. The next one is Proverbs 23, 2. So the first one you would say, David wrote this. Now his son Solomon wrote, and put a knife to your throat if you're a man of great appetite. That's the one I used. I had to take a knife and say, no more pistachio nuts. You have had too many. You are past the social etiquette. You have gone too far. (laughs) 
<laughs> what's in it for me? And so that's where I find myself a lot of times in life. I'll feel the knife. I put it up to my throat and say, quit. That's enough. That I feel the bridle and the bit. And I picture it and I say, God, I want you to have my heart so much that you don't have to use a bit or a bridle or spurs. That you don't have to kick me. I'll do what you want me to do. Is there an easier way? Yes. So... As we're starting down this journey and what you're going to first be learning, it's much like the uh, prodigal son. Number one is you will learn to manage yourself. Manage yourself. Your parents have been managing you for years. They are tired of managing your little self. They have to tell you when to get in the bed and when to get out of the bed. (laughs) That's what parents do. (laughs) They try to get you to do what you're supposed to. That's why it's a test in college, because suddenly you have this thing called freedom. (laughs) You know, I keep my eyes on all the homeschooled kids. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're getting with bad ones. They're joining together because suddenly people have freedom. So you need to be told, freshman 101, you need to be told when you first come to Christ, you need to be told that you have to learn to manage your freedom, manage yourself. So you manage your freedom, you manage your time. Let's not even say that word procrastination. Has a paper ever been written ahead of time? Are they always written in the middle of the night? (laughs) You manage your time, you manage your money, you manage you, and that's your job. You know, I love sales courses. I always think that when you can hire someone that's really good at sales, I always like how they think. Salespeople are unique. One guy was like, why would I ever want to be a manager when it's hard enough to make myself work, let alone make someone else work? But I want you to be a manager. I want you to manage yourself because that's the only way you'll ever be able to manage anyone else. You have got to put that bridle and bit on yourself. Guess what? You are the boss of yourself. And when you reach that age of accountability with the Lord, he'll hold you responsible for it. Everybody tries to guess what that age is. I think a good guess that is the children of Israel that he said at 20 years of age, everyone above 20, you're going to die in the wilderness. So I just go, well, that's a good high number. I'll try to give you all as much time as you can before you're in charge of yourself. Because managing yourself comes with responsibility. If you have these thoughts going on in your head is, I have to take care of self or no one else will. I have to give myself what he or she wants or no one else will give it to me. You know, my grandpa went tired pain and my grandmother fell madly in love with him. And I'm sure for all the right reasons because he looked like Clark Gable. Thank the Lord. He turned out to be a good man. You're taking a risk. My grandpa had been raised on the streets selling newspapers. He slept in the bathroom. It was unheard of back then of what his family did with him. My grandpa, Pappy, he loved his family I got to watch him when he got older, when he accepted Jesus. And his eyes would twinkle, and he was so happy. But my pappy still had a little bit of those street ways because he would say, I got to toot my own horn lest it not be tooted. (laughs) (laughs) My pappy taught me a lot of fun things. But a lot of what happens is if you feel like you were neglected, missed out on things in life, a lot of times you think, I've got to take care of myself. And that self-independence gets you in a lot of trouble. It can be something that can do you in. So it's okay on this management of self. Some people are going to get an F on their management of self. If you're a school teacher and you were known to be hard, a big F on their paper for management. 
I'm sure we don't have any teachers in here that have been so tough. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's okay in Bible class to grade someone and say management of self, F. <laughs> and you know what? We should teach this in school. What's happened to us teaching core values and character studies? We should be teaching these kids manage yourself because their parents aren't even managing themselves. I mean, we all will say in education, it's the parents that have gone crazy. We don't have that steady home anymore of strength from families like we used to. But if we should teach it in school, even more so we should teach it when the Bible's being studied. That that is the responsibility because I personally could not manage myself apart from the Lord. I'm kind of unmanageable. So I know it takes the grace of the Lord. So we're going to start out with something that I think you need to know because all of us know one day we'll see judgment of the Lord. And the best thing I can do is get you ready for that test. But this is a great verse that Paul says. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. Oh my goodness, I like this verse. It says, now if we judge ourselves properly, we will not come under judgment. If you judge, examine yourself, and you judge yourself, you won't enter into judgment. Then he keeps going, though. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we will not be condemned or judged with the rest of the world. So he threw us a little bone there that I can manage myself. I can judge myself. If I do it properly, then it keeps me where I don't enter into judgment and especially get carried away and washed away with the world. So you're seeing here that I'm giving you hope here. Management of self is good. It's something that will help you on Judgment Day. And you can't change something you don't see. And once you see it, you have to evaluate it. So I, again, I'm asking you, how are you doing on this subject? And you may be just starting out. You may be. Because when you're new to the Lord, this is all new to you. You're like, oh, how will I ever learn all this? Ask the Lord to help you. Because that's what it says when we're judged by the Lord. We're being disciplined so that we won't be condemned. God doesn't want us condemned. He wants us disciplined. So the second verse I'll give you on this is James 1, 23 through 25. And it's our mirror principle. We must look into the mirror of God's word and we must see the truth about ourselves. You know how I say it. We have to tell ourselves the truth. Some people live their whole life and they never tell themselves the truth. And no matter how unpleasant it might be, you have to learn to tell yourself the truth. You have to learn to look into the mirror. You know, I was in Cambodia, and I saw a little girl, and I've never seen poverty, street kid like this, beautiful child, six years of age, I think, and her hair was matted. And the thing they told me was she had never, ever looked in a mirror. And when you looked at the dirt, the rags, the hair, the manners, I think she was trying to sell me a sparrow. They were selling cockroaches for 25 cents to eat. And you look at the girl, and what I saw when I looked at her was, that's what a lot of Christians look like. They've never looked in the mirror of the Word. And they're like that little straight kid. And everybody looks at the neglect. If you don't look in the Word and change yourself, you're not doing what you should with the Word. All of us know I would say women, we look in the mirror, but my goodness, sometimes I'm going to think it's men are worse than women looking in the mirror. I mean, we were trying to leave for a mission trip, and everybody gives me such a hard time about calling names, but one of my young gentlemen, I thought we were never going to get him out of there. And then he comes out with the hairspray, and I mean, I thought everybody was going to just first mission trip together. 
Well, this generation looks into the outward side of what they look like in the mirror. But you've got to look into the mirror of God's word. You've got to see in what areas of my life am I in direct disobedience to God's word. Like, I need to make some changes. I've got some stuff on me. Other people are seeing this. I'm not seeing it. It's the mirror principle. And I'll tell you my way of saying it. What you dislike in others, many times you're doing it yourself. What you judge in other people, you can almost see the line. It's something that you're doing. So it's a mirror principle. And number three, there's a great prayer that you can pray. Nothing like the Psalms to help get us out of all these things. But in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Put me to the test. Know my anxious thoughts. If there be any wicked or hurtful way inside of me, lead me into the way that's everlasting. And the word everlasting means it's almost like infinity. Like it's without end. Lord, lead me in a way that I don't have harm in me, that I don't have hurt in me. Put me to the test. Don't be afraid of God testing you. Remember, it says you can judge yourself, but then it says let God judge you in order to be disciplined. So this is a thing where you're crying out and yourself is saying to God, search me. Isn't that a great way to pray in the mornings? Search me, O Lord. Know my heart. I'm not going to hide it from you. You know, sometimes I can't even know my own heart. You know it. If there's anything messed up in me, God, you find it and fix it. Oh, that's a beautiful thing between you and the Lord. It's the way you look up. It's the way you lift your eyes up to him. I'm going to quote two commentaries, and I really love the old guys. And I love the old way the British speak. Amen. That the British just have a way with words, but I'm going to just break it down for a minute. But this is what Matthew Henry says. God's counsels concerning us and our welfare are deep. That's what he said about this verse. God's counsels concerning us and our welfare are deep. Like deep calls to deep. And he says, when we wake in the mornings, our first thoughts are of him. Keep us in the fear of the Lord all day long. Wow, those are great words. I just love the way Matthew Henry says, his thoughts concerning me about my welfare goes deep. Wake me up, God, and let me first think of you. And then keep me in the fear of the Lord all day long. Well, Matthew Henry can be outdone by Matthew Poole. In his commentary, to myself, as all sin is to the sinner sooner or later, to others as I'm accused of causing much trouble to the king and to the kingdom. So what he's saying is, search me to myself and see what the sin is as to the sinner. For it will come sooner or later. If I don't get this searched inside of me, the sin will come sooner or later. To others, as I'm accused of causing trouble, search me, Lord. Search where I'm making a mess out of my life. You know, they quote John Wayne as saying this, and they said it's not John Wayne that said it, but I'm going to just say John Wayne said it. That's the way I heard it. He said, life's hard, but it's even harder if you're stupid. (laughs) So to myself, Lord, search me. And to others, if I'm accused of causing them trouble, like making a mess, but most of all, search me that I don't cause trouble to the king and to the kingdom. Lord, that's where I don't want to wreck it. That's where I don't want to mess up in life. I don't want to make trouble to my king and to his kingdom. Those are beautiful words of searching out what's inside of self. Like I said, you can take the cap off, look inside, and see what you need to work on. Psalm 103 is your answer to it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. This shows the proper relationship with the promises. Did you know you can speak to yourself? Bless the Lord, self. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and everything that's in me. Okay, so self's down in there, but it's going to bless God because I'm going to tell it to. Sometimes you wake up and you say, oh, good morning, Lord. Other times you wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning. (laughs) (laughs) Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't leave the house when you're in a bad mood and a bad day and you're starting. It will continue. Have you ever been frustrated? I've never seen frustration ever work itself out to a better end. If I get frustrated, it gets worse. And I make a menace of myself to others, to the kingdom, (laughs) to the king. And that's what I have to do is I have to bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Bless him. Everything in me, bless him. And it starts out like the little mouth frog. Bless him. Barely can hear. But finally you're going, bless the Lord. Oh my soul, bless the Lord. Forget not that he has benefits. You know, that's telling you, you can't outgive God. If you read the benefits after it, mm, they shock you. You can't outgive him. So the first one is managing self. The second way is mastery over self. So you go from day-to-day management of keeping self in line. I'll tell you all. I mean, I'm going to give you my secret. That's why I don't drink. I can't control myself sober. Can you imagine what I'd do drunk? I mean, I've had some people offer me, get drunk. I want to see what's down inside of you. I can't trust it. And so I was like, I can't let myself go into an altered state. So I've got to manage myself. It says in the last day, stay sober. You've got to make good decisions. If you're in leadership, you need someone sober-minded. So I have to have mastery over myself. And I take responsibility for being the master of myself. I like that word, master. Duty. We don't say that word. That's archaic. Duty. It's your duty. Kids don't even know they have a duty. (laughs) Doing your duty. You think it means carrying out the trash. But you have a duty. You know, people don't think when they get married, they're getting more duties. (laughs) It's a mark of maturity that you have dominion within and mastery within yourself. One man explained something to me, and I'm not going to totally take you there tonight because it's so wonderful to me because he was explaining how there's many women and men that love God, but for some reason they don't make it to the end. And even though they love God, and even though God loves them, it doesn't make them make it to the end, even though it's a true love of God. He was an old man when he told me this. He told me the secret to making it to the end without messing up, is personal inner strength. We call it here PIS, and that gets us in a lot of trouble, but we're saying personal inner strength. You've got to have strength. You've got to reach inside yourself and see what you're made of. Just your love for God is not enough. You've got to personally have inner strength. He said, I can't totally explain it to you why some have it and some don't. He's from another culture, a man of great wisdom. But he told me that's what held me when I traveled all over the world and when I lived for the Lord was the understanding that I had to have personal inner strength. That's that thing that David had to do when it hurt him, when all his men were going to stone him. And he gets on his face and he strengthens himself in the Lord. There's going to be times when everyone turns on you. I had a guy explain it to me like this. Don't say if, say when. But he said, you'll feel like you're the burnt stuff on the bottom of the pan. 
it's in that situation you've got to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord because he said there'll be no one there to encourage you. Your best friend who usually writes you a good scripture, someone who whispers something in your ear and says, you can make it, you can do it, your encourager, for some reason they'll be going through their own battle. And you're going to have to find the ability to strengthen yourself in the Lord or you will not make it to the end. So self, you've got to learn to be strengthened when things are going crazy inside of you. You know, Spurgeon once said, some of the best talks in the world are those which a man has with himself. You've got to give yourself a talking to. The day you want to quit, break, tell God off, self-implode, crumble. I heard a man who was a great political leader, and he was actually trying to lead the people with the Lord. And he said, there's days, and a big, strong guy. He said, I want to crawl under my desk and cry for my mama. (laughs) There's days that it feels like the world has done you in has done you wrong. This is when you have to have P-I-S, personal inner strength. You know, Joseph had it when Potter's first wife came after him to run his reputation. David had it when he fell to the ground and he strengthened himself. When his favorite men wanted to stone him, his best men, his warriors, Jesus had it when all of his disciples were sleeping and he was alone praying in the garden. It's when you take your freedom and you make the hard choice. Don't aspire for leadership quickly until you gain that personal inner strength. You know, the mastery of self is the thrill of something finally obeying you. That's you. (laughs) It's nice when something finally does what you tell it to. Your wife may not, your dog may not, no one may listen to you, but you can get the thrill of something obeying Well, we all know that there are people who don't manage self or master self. And people don't even know it in this generation. You know, Jesus looked at this condition and he said in Matthew 24, 12, he said, most people's love will grow cold. Boy, that makes living hard now, that people's love is cold. It's not like it used to be. The movies, the old movies are great, but people don't think like that anymore. You know, Jesus knows why it's going to start decreasing the love. He tells you actually the excuse, the reason that people's love will grow cold. But I'm going to ask you, is your love getting colder? Because it's a sign of the end. Who am I trying to please and why am I doing so? You know, this has surprised me in knowing people that are in ministry. But their whole life is defined by who you like and who you don't like. By what you like and what you don't like. That's a highly soulish self. I'll never forget one woman I was talking to, and she says, I just don't like them. And I was like, (laughs) can we do that? I mean, I understand if it's God's enemies, but I'm talking about for silly, selfish reasons. You can't just say, I just don't like them. But you do have to have discernment in these days that we're living in. But I'm not seeing discernment. I'm seeing pettiness. I'm not seeing strength on this. I'm seeing a worldly view of why they like something and don't. If your life is defined by, I like this, I don't like this. I like this person, I don't like them. If you're very fickle in that area, it's a sign that with self, you've got to get mastery over it and start looking in the mirror. You know, loving other people is a choice. You can't get to the point that there's no one you love (laughs) because the world tries to beat it out of you. We're going to take a look at 2 Timothy 3.2. And there's an indictment against being a lover of self. 
In 2 Timothy, let's start in verse 1. I'm going to tell you something about this. It's interesting. I'll come back to this aspect. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, right now, that's prophetic. For them to have known way back then that it was going to get difficult is a prophetic understanding. It wasn't going to get easier. A characteristic of the last days is the time between Jesus when he left and when he returns. The world's going to get worse and worse. We could have done it differently. We could have really all lived for the Lord, and it would have gotten better and better. But they knew we weren't going to hold our ground as Christians, and it's gotten worse and worse. And so the characteristic of the difficult days is that it says we will be lovers of self. Well, you look at the selfies, (laughs) the me generation, and every bit of training that even parents give kids now is make sure no one does you wrong, and society is training us to think very selfishly. That's the training that we're getting. So I'm going to ask you a question on this. We are loving ourselves so much in these last days that we studied the Bible in a way so we can love ourselves even more. So we've even taken the Bible and put it through that. Now, I'm going to say this to you in two ways. First, I'm going to say, yes, that should be true, that we love ourselves so much in these days that we study the Bible in a way so we can love ourselves even more because we have to love others as we love ourselves. Like, I don't have anything to love you with if I don't love me. Who wants to love me if I don't love me? Like, I think that's what we're doing in marriage. I don't love me, but I want you to. (laughs) Can you do what I can't do for myself? Because I don't love me, but please come love this ragged me. Please. I'm begging you. I need love. (laughs) Well, the Bible answers that to you and says you've got to love someone as you love yourself. And there's a dying world out here that does not love themselves, so they are incapable of loving someone else. But in that way, they're overdoing it. And they're taking that mentality and they're loving themselves so much in these last days that we study our Bible in order to love ourselves even more. And it is the wrong kind of self-love when the more we love ourselves, the less we love God. That's the wrong way to take the Bible. And I've had people take their Bible and it's all about self-love and they encourage themselves and they give themselves scriptures and it's self and me and I and I and I and all the promises go down to that. When at the end of the day, the self-love that they've built up so big, the more they love themselves, the less they love God. The more they love themselves, the less they love people. That's not biblical. That's the world. That's usury. (laughs) with the scriptures. That's not what God's doing. In fact, even though it uses the word love, I challenge it because when you love yourself, it creates the ability for you to have enough to give to other people. It does. And I don't understand kids that have been raised in good homes that have a lot of love being some of the most selfish kids on earth. Something's wrong. Love should beget love. And just because you were loved well and protected doesn't mean you should have a security built around your heart. That's a tombstone. You don't want to take risks. The graveyard's full of it. We're entombing ourselves. And so I'm saying to us both ways, because the writers, they'll either lean one way or the other on this. I'm saying you have to take the Bible and learn to love yourself. But you cannot have the wrong kind of self-love where it is not producing the fact that I love me is why I love you. And because I love you, I can love me. It's the same as, but I love God more than I love myself because I love him with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. So in that context, it says difficult times will come for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, 
arrogant, slanderers. I told you that's the one that is a deal breaker for me in hiring slanderers. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Their tongue is horrible. Without self-control, self-mastery. This is someone with no self-control, and they let their flesh dominate them continually. Now, the word is translated without self-mastery. Authority, dominance over yourself. Haters of good, treacherous. People are without loyalty, traitors. Let me tell you what will help you. Sometimes we get ourselves in a trap, and something has to go down. And I'm going to say the number one thing of love is risk. You can't ever love if you don't risk. And I'm going to give you your example. Shepherd boy David risked his life to take a lamb out of a bear's mouth. You've got to risk yourself to get out of the trap of treachery. You've got to take a chance. And if anything ever goes down here in America, I read so much about what happened in Holland among the Dutch people. They turned each other in, and they were treacherous, and they betrayed one another. And a sign of the end is betrayal of one another. And I'm inviting you while it's peacetime, take a risk on love. Don't let the devil get you in a trap where you choose between self and them. Lift your eyes up, asking what to do, because the loyalty issue is going out the window. Reckless, conceited. Conceited is high-minded or being heady. And there's a lot of headiness in Christians. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such people as these. It doesn't say they hold to a form of godlessness, so don't hang with the wrong crowd. It's saying they're the people in the youth group. They're the people in the church. They hold to a form of godliness, but they denied the power of the gospel. Like the power is what God gave us. No wonder the witches think they have all the power. Because Christians are not using their authority. So people that are highly high self, highly self-focused, people are not very much fun to be around because they won't risk. They're narrow, empty, shallow, and the word that I hate, predictable. (laughs) They won't risk. If you're high self, you're not playing offense. You don't push yourself. You refuse to go out of your comfort zone. You've never come up with the concept of serving A high form of self is you do just enough to slide by. Your intentions aren't right. If you've got it right in your heart, you'll do things to other people to show them that you love them and that you care about them. You've got something to give. It means that your life is all about you and not about Jesus. It's a terrible cycle when you're the one who gives yourself what you want all the time. It's not genuineness. We've had to buy our own moms. We have to give ourselves our own candy. We've quit loving. I mean, I look at it and say we've quit dating on the campus. We, what's happened? We don't have any more where people will risk themselves. You don't need to go into a room. You can love yourself the rest of your life. It's a tomb. It's not genuineness. It's ironic. You don't know what you want, so you don't know what anyone else wants either. The world will keep you busy. So busy you don't evaluate yourself. What we are talking about is having purpose. Like I've told these people that come to me in their later part of their life and they go, I'm about to die. And I say, what's the purpose on your life? I don't know. And I said, then you haven't even started living before you're about to die. You've got to find out what God has called you for on this earth. 
However, it's better to work with someone who does too much rather than too little. You've got to like to work. I would say teach yourself to have fun when you work. My family always, we'd have a picnic when we had to work and all bring their gloves. Enjoy it. If you don't know how to work, you won't do well in the harvest. And I'm going to quote something that Stephanie told me, if this is not a quotable. As a Christian, you should consider yourself as an automatic leader. Whether you like it or not, people are going to look up to you. The minute you tell them, I'm a Christian, and you witness to them and tell them you need to be, they're going to see you as a leader. So it creates a high standard for you, even when you're young. So, self. So there's a Bible prophecy about self-love in the last days. That's what it tells you is going to happen. Self is going to implode. Which of these things are you going to be susceptible to on the list? And I would take that list and I would see, I would look down 2 Timothy 3.1 and I would see, am I any of these things on the list? I would invite you to take them and say, am I giving in to these things? Because it says that you will do that in the last days. You will become these things. Okay, let me explain something. What happens is these things mix with your identity. Now, I'm going to explain how that happens. I want you to notice in there, there's lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Now, listen to what I was going to show you. The Greek word for lovers for self is not two words. For us, it's three words. Lovers of self. Not in the Greek. In the Greek, the first word is phileo. It's a form of that word phileo. And then autos, self. It's one word together. And it means someone that's preoccupied with their own selfish desires or self-interest. And it's only used this one time in the Bible combined like this. Okay? I found this very unusual. I found this word and I was shocked. The word of lovers for money is a combination word too. It's phileo. Phileo should mean brotherly love. That's what phileo means. The love of family, the love of others, friendship, phileo. But it's phileo. And let me say it the way that the fanatic said, Phil Ross. And it is a lover of money. And it's a combined word. Do you see as lovers of pleasure, lovers of God, do you see that your identity, yourself starts getting mixed up with the thing you love? Let it get mixed up with God. Isn't that beautiful? The word itself speaks this. But if you love self, it merges together and you become, who wants to be you? Or lovers of money. And some people, you can guess what they're going to say every time. Like Judas, should have given that money to the poor. <laughs> they think money. Lovers of pleasure. Entertainment. My goodness, this is a generation of lovers of entertainment. They reward themselves. It deserves. i got to entertain myself. There's no sense of duty and work and strength. Your identity merges with it. And the worst thing of all is we come down to this place and it has this horrible list and they should say, and that's what the world's like and stay away from them. But it does not say that. Do you see that last sentence? The last sentence says, verse 5, they hold to a form of godliness. Did you know this kind of stuff that they named on the list, this kind of selfishness, this kind of terrible list is combined with Christianity? There is no one that'll do you any more wrong than a Christian. They can hurt you more. The church kills their own and stab their wounded. We don't have good communication skills, nor do we handle conflict well. But when you mix this in with Christianity, this is where you get the problems. And you've got to judge yourself if you're a selfish Christian. And if you're going to obey the Bible, it says, 
if they hold to a form of godliness and they do this stuff and they deny the power, avoid them. And as mad as that makes everyone see, it says, shun it. Shun it. Get away from it. Because if you don't, you'll start merging into this stuff and you will never mature out of it. And if you want to get into how psychology, they have words for this of narcissism. And it's a problem. And if you marry a narcissist, you've got a lifetime problem. It is one of those little men that won't grow up. <laughs> They're bearded. And they're the size of a baby, but they never grow up. They're narcissistic. You get a little woman. <laughs> if you get a narcissistic, you can't get out of it. It's an inflated view of self with indifference to others. Listen to this. Self-love causes people to be brutal to others. So that's two different extremes. One, it makes you indifferent. Are you an indifferent person to other people, to other people's needs, caring? Are you indifferent? You're a self-lover. Are you brutal? Man, you won't say it face to face, but you'll shoot the text. <clears throat> Stabbed him. <laughs> brutal. It's impossible for a narcissistic person to feel what someone else feels. It's impossible for them to think about anyone else. The only time they will help someone is if they get something out of it or get recognition. Narcissism. They write books on this stuff. What has happened? It is so bad, it's clinical. I mean, we're writing books on the first thing in the list because it's so bad. And then I'm going to say what they don't tell you. At the point that it becomes narcissistic and you can't live with them, you can't do anything with them, they just can't seem to ever love anything, anyone outside themselves. Then deception starts mixing in. And then you've got that craziness that it mixes in with demonic spirits. And then you get that strong self and a spirit and then it becomes the eye disease that we hadn't even discussed in Isaiah 14, 12, the one that I've saved for this moment, to say in verse 12, it says, How thou hast fallen from the heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which disweakened the nations. And then it gives you the famous five I wills of Satan, of Lucifer. Number one, it says, in verse 13, I will ascend into the heaven. Number two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Number three, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Number four, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Number five, I will be like the Most High. And that's where we are. And that's how people are in self-love. They become God to themselves. I'm hearing these I voices. <laughs> yeah. If you're selfish, you're set up to become one of Jezebel's eunuchs or a servant to Jezebel or something terrible, evil. It mixes all in. It's a high self. You set yourself up to be deceived because you are your source. And that's what calls Lucifer to become Satan. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Why would man who was made in the image of God try to become like God by listening to the serpent? Why? So the answer... I'm sure you want to hear this. Manage self, mastery of self, not getting into all the self stuff that we went through. Look at each one of those. But the last answer is John 3, 3, John 3, 7. It just tells you one time in the Gospels and then the beautiful verse, verse 16, for God so loved the world. But unfortunately, it says six times that you got to die to self. <laughs> <laughs> 
Only one time does it talk to you about your salvation, but six times it says that you've got to die to yourself for his sake. And we have got a generation that has no idea what death to self is or lordship. And it's a generation who won't forgive, but screams their abuses, their victim. They scream all the time. They're screaming, I'm powerless, I'm powerless. And it says, avoid them if they have godliness but no power. Your Bible gives you the power you need to not be a victim and to be an overcomer and to be what God meant for us to be in this world. We can't be this generation who won't forgive and won't repent. You have to die to yourself. And let me tell you the beautiful side of it. (laughs) Because if you don't and you get into self, you get into what C.S. Lewis explained is the law of diminishing returns. The more you give to it, the more you do to it, the worse it feels, and the more guilt. (laughs) It's funny. And then later you do it more, and you get less back. It's a diminishing return, but not with God's love. Not when you love someone the way God loves through you. Have you ever ministered? And when you finished ministering to them, you thought, I could have done this all night long. I mean, it felt so good. It's like Jesus, he told them, go get me food. And then he has that wonderful talk with the lady and the whole village comes and the disciples come back and they hand him food and he goes, I'm not hungry. I have food you know not of. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it's that thing with the spirit. So your suki, your soul life, yourself, it has to die for his sake. Let me hit the idea of goals which are godly. Why would you have to let your goals die? Okay, we know they have to be surrendered. When your wants, why do you have to let your wants die? Why do your wants and desires? Well, first of all, we say, well, it's the pat answer from Christians. God has to be first. And that's 100% true. God has to be first in your life. But I've known many people that have been able to rip the skin off their bones and do it. So I'm going to tell you something about the wisdom of God. He does it for your benefit to save you. Do you notice the scripture? If you die to yourself, then you shall be saved. If you try to keep yourself, you'll be lost. He's telling you the plan of how to make it. He's doing this to help you. He's not even hiding this. This is for your good. When your wants are all about you, they become what you don't want. That's why the wino is cute at 17, but he's toothless and not cute at 57 and his brain cells are all messed up. It's because it gives him diminishing results. It gives you the happy bubbles in the beginning, but you use them all up and then you drink and you're not happy anymore and he's crying, he's sad. It's the diminishing returns. You can't do these things without God. Like he's that continuous joy in it. Why do your wants and desires have to die? Well, I'm going to ask you number one, was your mom or dad selfish? I'm not wanting to raise of hands. (laughs) I'm asking you to ask yourself. Because if they were, you don't know how to do this. You're going to have to look in the mirror of God's word. Because selfish people are raising selfish people. Why do your wants and desires have to die? Because say you do want, I want a husband. I want the family. I want that. Why do you have to die to self? That sounds so bad. Because you will be a selfish husband. You will be a selfish wife. You'll be a selfish mother. You'll be a selfish father. You'll be a selfish person if it does not go through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And I have tried to find a shortcut, 
I've tried to find a way out of it, and I found out you have to die to self, and it hurts, but he'll be with you in it. And if you don't die to self, you're going to give that kid a bad gift of being selfish because you're doing them for your needs and for your good, and you're not dying to yourself. It's so important. You know, Jesus was offered a shortcut. That's why Satan came to him and said, look, let's make this easy. Bow down, worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms. That's what you're here for anyway, isn't it? Just worship me. You can have them all. What did Jesus say to him? Satan, it is written. And you know in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was crying in tears and turned to blood and he was saying, God, is there another option? This is how you'll feel on death to self. But God is protecting you to let it die because glory to God, it doesn't end with the death. Glory to God that we don't serve a Jesus that's still hanging on the cross. It didn't end with the tombstone and we go by and look at his name like every other religious leader in the world. When we go to him, it's empty. And the same thing with yourself. It will come out of the grave and it'll be resurrected. Your desires have to be hit with resurrection power. Yourself, six times, and then add the seventh of the seed has to go into the ground. It has to die to be resurrected because a seed dies to grow. A seed dies to have life. Only God could think of that. And because we messed up and we let sin in, the sin dies and he raises us to eternal life. The second reason is you'll self-sabotage yourself if you don't die to yourself. And third, you'll have less love for God, less love for others, and even for yourself if you don't die to yourself. And then the magnificent thing that starts happening then is your wants start even being things God wants too. And you'll realize, oh, you're kidding, God. That's even better than I even thought. Like, I'm not making this up. I really like God. Like, I'm not just making myself be religious, sacrificing, and I look like I need a sainthood thing because it's so rough. No. When you go through this death, burial, and resurrection, you sit there and go, this is genius. God is genius. But you've got to do it his way. Because Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. It's going to be an eternal joy with him forever together. He loved us enough to die to himself. And he's looking to you going, can you do it? I'll do it with you. Do it inside of me. I've completed it. So repent. Always repent. Just repent, repent, repent. (laughs) Be willing to be hard on yourself and be willing to let others be hard on you. And this is what it's called of self in the last days. Amen.